Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. As I record this in early June, I was hoping COVID-19 would have receded in Massachusetts and I would be able to invite Peter Wong and Warren Dolan into the studio for an interview, as I indicated in episode 14. However, the risk of infection hasn't passed, and I am recording this episode by telephone once again. Episode 18, The Thing About Dogs. When dogs wake up from a nightmare, do they think it was real? I'd like to know. I really would. But I'll come back to that later. When I first met my husband, I had one dog, and he had two. Mine was a generic, mid-sized, mixed-breed shelter dog named Delilah. Her most endearing quality was she never required meals of this bourguignon and always regarded me with rapt attention and conspicuous admiration for what I could do with a can of dog food and a bag of kibble. Dear girl, she was. Each of John's dogs, on the other hand, came with a unique pedigree. He brought them back from his animal rescue projects in Suriname and Panama. He found Picky, whom I mentioned in Episode 3, in Suriname during Operation Guamba. Just a puppy, she was stranded on top of the thatched roof of a hut in the middle of a lake created by a hydroelectric dam. Her full name in Sarah Makan was approximately Pikidagu Fuye Fufunimi Young Saniba. Freely translated as boss, that little dog of yours has stolen my food again. Picky was palomino-colored and about the size of a chubby dingo when I met her. She was an aging diva, having appeared on public television in John's national series, Walsh's Animals. She even had her own fan club. Picky was a one-person dog, and that person was, well, you can guess. I actually watched her walk off a high stone wall, confident that John would catch her in his arms on the way down. Of course he did. In Picky's world, John was the star. She was the co-star, and I was the unpaid production assistant. Useful, but definitely inconsequential. Bayano, the successor, was still young when John brought her home from his jungle animal rescue project in Panama, Operation Noah Two. He'd found her, nearly starved to death, clinging to a log, floating on the water far from shore. He named her after the Bayano River that formed the lake from another hydro dam, but her nickname was Buzzsaw because she growled as menacingly on the inhale as well as the exhale. Bayano, what was locally called a bush dog, more wild than domesticated. And yes, another one-man dog. In fact, the first time my husband and I were in bed together, Bayano was there ahead of me. She growled and nipped me on my face, left cheek. I pretend the bite mark is still there, but it's actually a chicken pox dimple. Are you going to get her off? I asked. I think the two of you have to work things out, he replied. Oh, well, he was right, and it was my bed. I knew I had to assert my position in the pack, so I took a deep breath and told her in a stern voice to move over. I got in nervously, prepared to bare knuckle it out if necessary. She looked at John for backup, but he deliberately remained neutral. Then she shot me a dirty look like a two-year-old confronted with lima beans, curled up her lip, and jumped down. And that was pretty much our relationship, Bayano and me. Over time, the dirty looks morphed into teenage eye rolls. 
But ultimately, she had to accept me because I fed and walked her when John traveled, and that was often, sometimes for weeks and months. Nevertheless, I remained the stereotypical stepmother, useful but definitely inconsequential. After Picky died, and then Delilah, and then Viano, we weren't looking for another dog. But a friend of John's told him there was a blue tick coonhound in the MSPCA shelter. She was in bad shape and clearly needed a home. So Kudzu wound up with us, plus her accidental daughter, Elizabeth. For all her insecurities, Kudzu would shy away from shadows like a horse from a falling leaf. She was quite maternal. I don't remember that we ever trained them where to sleep, but at the end of the day, we'd say, Good night, ladies and the two of them would trot downstairs to the finished basin and go to bed on the sofa. Being a coonhound and disposed to taking off, we never walked Kudzu without a lead. Although we had carried a leash for Elizabeth, we never had to use it because she never left her mother's side, even as a mature dog. Elizabeth didn't inherit any of the coonhound qualities of a hunter. She seemed to have the full DNA of her baddie daddy, who must have been tall, dark, and handsome. One day, when we took them to a local conservation area for the first time, Kudzu slipped her collar and the two of them fled like a couple of escape felons. I could almost swear Kudzu turned and flipped us the bird. No amount of calling brought them back as they disappeared into the woods. We searched and searched until dark, then came back the next day and every day after. We alerted the animal control officer, put up posters, took out an ad in the newspaper. No one called to say they'd seen the two runaways. Where could they be? On a bus to Jersey? Hitchhiking to Florida? Back to Bayou Country? As the days passed without any sightings, we were heartbroken and despaired of finding them. Then one morning, two weeks later, I opened the front door to get the newspaper, and there they were like a pair of Jehovah's, standing on the steps. They made a direct line for the water bowls, thirsty but not hungry and looking no worse for wear. In fact, they seemed ready to do it again now that they've jeweled up. No chance of that. How did they find their way home? We'd driven to the reservation about a mile away. It was the first time they'd been there. Did they count telephone poles as we went by, use a cell phone tracker? And what did they eat while they were gone? I shudder to think. Kudzu must have taught Elizabeth survival skills because her daughter had never raided a trash can or hunted a mouse. When I asked, they just looked sideways at each other and shrugged their shoulders in unison. And what made them decide to end their vacation and come back? They never said. I suspect, as with all vacations, they ran out of money. Years later, after Kudzu died and then Elizabeth, we didn't hurry to get another dog. During that time, we moved out of Boston to a ranch house in the country so that we could bring my 87-year-old mother to live with us. Both John's and my father died years earlier, but his mother lived locally, whereas mine lived six hours away. For several years, I've been driving the 300-plus miles there every Friday afternoon and driving back Sunday night to go to work on Monday until my mother finally agreed to come with us after she fell and broke her shoulder. I calculate my commute amounted to over 150,000 miles, several tire changes, one speeding ticket, and a burned-out radio. Shortly after moving day, John left for Montserrat in the aftermath of the volcanic eruption on that island. The people who lived there were evacuated from the devastated side of the island to England, but they had to leave their pets behind. John and his team went into the moonscape left by the polyclastic flow of ash, lava, and rocks and removed the dogs, cats, and donkeys off the island by ship. 
one little dog remained in what was left of the ravaged city of Plymouth. Her capture has been replayed on TV's Animal Planet numerous times, where John lured her with sardines and Asiago cheese and caught the weary puppy by the scruff of the neck. I tell people he did the same to me. When John was on his way home, he called to ask if he could bring a friend, and of course, it was that same little puppy. Because she was a common street dog, we decided to give her the elegant name of Lady Ashley for the asses she lived in, Plymouth for the capital city where he found her, de Montserrat, Plymy for short. Plymy wasn't the smartest dog we've ever had, but she was the sweetest. There wasn't a growl, a bark, or a mean bone in her. She was undemanding, never obstinate, and went everywhere with us. John's mother called her Little Babookus, Little Baby in Lithuanian. There's a lovely article about Plymy and John in People magazine from 1997. I'm just an Edwooks in the piece and the wrong age to boot. I don't know what prompted us to get a second dog a year later other than, once again, an acquaintance told us of a middle-aged barrel hound who had been in the town shelter since the owner died and would probably never get adopted. We went to see her. She seemed to respond well to us, so we brought Plymy to the shelter to introduce them. Giza, we named her after the great period, you know, Pharaoh Hound and all that. Giza greeted Plymy as the sister she'd always wanted, so we brought her home. But we were conned. Giza immediately set up her territory in the house and tried to bully Plymy. We put a stop to that, but Plymy never forgot and never forgave. From then on, they were more like estranged sisters-in-law than devoted sisters. We learned very quickly that Pharaoh Hounds were independent, stubborn, and extremely smart. The breed description reads that they won't do anything unless they think it's their own idea. Amen to that. Also, as we knew from the beginning, they can be quite territorial. Giza went on to strike fear in the hearts of anyone who came to the house. She'd mount an attack on the dog, growling and showing her teeth at the window, like a demented Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Whenever we reprimanded her, Plymy giggled. About five years ago, when Giza was probably 12 or so, she developed cancer. When she died, by then even Plymy missed her. A year later, Plymy, now in her teens, also developed a painful terminal condition, and she died. She was such a love of a dog, and we missed her so much, we couldn't go through that again. No more dogs, no cats, no birds, not even guppies. But after a year or so went by, we began to feel the void. John had become interested in a particular breed of dog common to our area, the Portuguese Pedango. There are several varieties and sizes, and he was especially fond of the mid-sized, short-haired variety that had large prick ears, tan with a white blaze on the face, white legs and white chest like glassy. For nearly a year, we visited the shelters in several nearby towns looking for just the right dog, female, not young, companionable, smart, trainable. That was the intention. Then John came home one December day after having stopped to check out a particular shelter, and he saw a dog he couldn't get out of his mind a young female in tough shape. She cowered in the corner of the cage, curled up as tight as an overcooked shrimp, not making eye contact, all skin and bones, unresponsive to any coaxing or calling. The shelter staff said she'd been abandoned in the woods, they didn't know for how long, by her hunter owner. For whatever reason, hunters decide to leave their dogs behind. It's not uncommon around here, even in the dead of winter. 
as it was then. And she'd apparently been abused because she seemed to be afraid of everything, especially broomsticks. When we went back to the shelter together, the volunteer brought the little dog out into the visiting area, perched on her shoulder in the baby burping position. She's a person, you know, the young woman explained as she put the dog in our laps. We visited several times after that, and each time the dog would be in our laps like a stuffed toy. We never saw her walk. She never looked at us as we held and patted her. It was as if she had completely given up. So, of course, we adopted her. We probably should have known better. The Padango is said to be descendant of the feral hound and similar in disposition, but supposedly not quite as intractable. They are, however, rabbit hounds, and like most hounds, built for purpose. She had already been named Fiona, so we decided not to change it. Fiona Walsh. What made us think that was the appropriate name for a Portuguese dog? Oh, well. The afternoon we brought her home, we fitted her with a harness, and while John was out doing errands, I took her out on the long leash to pee or defecate. The shelter staff, Fiona, was very fussy about where she did her business, so I was prepared to be patient. It was dark by five o'clock, cold, and beginning to sleet on top of snow that had fallen the previous week. Fiona went as far as she could on the long lead and hunched up in the familiar corkscrew position. Yay! She wasn't so fussy. After all, I was deliriously happy to think she was doing normal dog things. Until the lead went limp. She had chewed through the harness and immediately disappeared into the darkness. Frantic, I called her over and over. Then John came home and we both called and called to no avail. We drove around the neighborhood, peering into yards like burglars. But she was gone. And we didn't believe she'd show up on our doorstep. She'd only been with us a few hours. No time at all to understand that this was her home and we were her family. We called animal control. The next morning at 7 a.m., I went outside and sat in a chair in the yard wrapped in a blanket with dog food and a bowl of water, hoping to catch sight of Fiona. I sat there all day, and I did see her a couple of times around the edge of the woods behind our house, but she wouldn't come near me. We drove around the neighborhood. We set up a neighborhood watch and got calls that Fiona was spotted in this yard or that one. We put out food that went uneaten, and thus it went on for three days. Then our neighbors across the street called one morning to tell us Fiona was in their yard, sitting out of reach, staring down at our house from their driveway. That was amazing. But she wouldn't let anyone near her. We called the animal control officer again, who said he, he just happened to have another pedango waiting for a new family to pick her up. He had the idea of bringing over Misha to see if Fiona would come to her. Well, he did, and she did. And the officer was able to grab Fiona with John's help, and we brought her home. But that was by no means the happy ending. Fiona was clearly still traumatized from her early life. She curled up on the sofa the way she'd curled up in a shelter cage. I sat next to her at all times. She wouldn't eat, so I had to hand-feed her. She wouldn't drink water, even by hand. She wouldn't get off the sofa, unless it was to be let outdoors several times a day. This went on for months. Little by little, she finally began to take food from a food bowl, but always on the sofa, and only as long as I held the bowl for her. After nearly three years, she began eating from her bowl on the floor, but only in the living room while we're there. But that's a victory. In the beginning, 
she would bolt wildly at any unexpected sound, jumping over the back of the sofa and running into the hallway to hide. She still does that, but less frequently, and we're getting skilled at anticipating what noises will spook her. And she is still fearful of dappled sunlight and won't come into the room if the sunlight is shining on the floor or the sofa or even the walls. I have to close the curtains. She will not do anything without considering all the ramifications of her decision, and often not even then. While she knows her name, she won't necessarily come when called, beckoned, wheedled, coaxed, beseeched, or begged, not even for treats. She might decide to come after she's had a think on it, or she might not. She may sit when told, or reluctantly, and sometimes only halfway. And she still cowers at sudden movements. But when she comes into bed in the morning from the sofa, she'll cuddle up against John or me, sometimes one, then the other, as close as she can get. And on the sofa, she is never out of reach of my hand. And for a dog we thought would never be anything but timid, she has become very playful. She easily distinguishes between her play pal, John, and her waitress. Outdoors, she is a completely different animal, alert, observant, constantly sniffing the air, gauging what she sees. The hunting instinct is very strong in her. Outdoors, she makes eye contact with people now. In fact, staring at them to the point where they laugh or comment. As one person said, she does it as a trick. And most people who like dogs will say how cute she is. She is all that, smart, observant, sensitive, and cute. She's come a long way in three years, although not unscathed. She has bad dreams. Sometimes she will scream so loud it wakes us up. One time after a nightmare, she regressed for a full day and a half to being more fearful and timid again, barely responding to us. Of all the dogs who've lived with us, most had dreams where their feet moved or they might even growl a little during a vigorous chase. Since they don't have words, presumably they dream in sounds, actions, and pictures. But none of our dogs ever moaned and screamed the way Fiona does. What happened in her young life to bring her to that? And does she remember her dreams when she wakes up? That's why I pose the initial question. Are dogs and other animals able to distinguish between dreams and reality? Imagine being a pedango, or dog of your choice, dreaming of chasing a rabbit across the field into the woods. I don't want to be the rabbit. Into the woods and sticking your nose into a rabbit hole. Then suddenly you wake up and find yourself on the sofa in your living room. What is made of that in canine thoughts? It would have to be the most mysterious thing in the world. And what if that dream isn't a dream about chasing, or rather being chased, or beaten? Most of our dreams fade upon waking, and we orient ourselves to person, place, and time fairly quickly. But we really don't know a great deal about other animals. Nearly 20 years ago, researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, reported that Quote, no one knew for certain that animals dreamed the way we do, which can involve replaying events, or at least components of events, that occurred while we were awake, said Matthew Wilson of MIT's Center for Learning and Memory. We looked at the firing pattern of a collection of individual cells to determine the content of a rat's dreams. We know that they are, in fact, dreaming, and that their dreams are connected to actual experiences. But apparently this is still not conclusive because in 2019, the website for Earth Sky posts, quote, so it seems that animals do dream, but in the context of our current science, we still can't say for certain. 
And yet those of us who have pets, particularly dogs, not only believe they have dreams, but sometimes nightmares as well. In Fiona's case, I believe her nightmares are related to her life before we adopted her. Based on my own observations and nothing more, I think she is suffering, to a lesser degree now than when we first got her, from the canine version of post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is a relatively recent psychiatric category. It didn't appear in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders until 1980. In the DSM-40, it was subsumed under General Anxiety Disorders. However, in the latest, 2013, edition of DSM-5, PTSD has been accorded its own category, i.e. trauma and stressor-related disorders. Some of the criteria for diagnosing PTSD include persistent, unwanted, upsetting memories of the traumatic event or events, persistent emotional distress after exposure to traumatic triggers, persistent physical reactions after exposure to traumatic reminders, recurrent flashbacks of the traumatic event or events, and or recurrent nightmares. According to author Tanya Peterson, nightmares are common among trauma survivors who experience PTSD, whether they directly replay the trauma or include patchy elements of the trauma, PTSD nightmares are frightening because they involve both emotional and physiological reactions. These intrusive experiences cause fear, anxiety, helplessness, panic, screaming or crying in sleep. Quote. Of course, PTSD as such is not attributed to any beings other than humans and the DSM. But keep in mind, it wasn't even a recognized diagnosis for humans prior to 1980. During the time between college and graduate school, I worked for two years in a short-term psychopathic hospital on a research project directed by a psychiatrist and a psychologist. I administered some standardized tests and a polygraph readings at admission, mid-stay, and discharge. The typical inpatient treatment included psychoactive drugs as an adjunct to talk therapy. But I also watched patients receive electroconvulsive therapy, prefrontal lobotomy, and hallucinogenic drugs. Homosexuality was treated by aversion therapy, the administration of electrical shocks when boys were shown pictures of gay sex. And I'll never forget the visual of two staff attendants trying to encourage two comatose patients to play ping pong. As primitive as these measures were, there was also evolution in the field of mental illness. In the era of deinstitutionalization, the so-called backward patients in long-term state hospitals were transitioned to short-term facilities such as this one and then to community settings. The understanding and treatment of mentally ill people advances with knowledge. Perhaps it's time to consider a more comprehensive view of behavioral disorders in other creatures and what we may learn about ourselves from them. How Fiona was mistreated, we will never actually know. But that she was mistreated is my absolute, unshakable conviction. And since we can't turn to talk therapy or drugs, the only way we can soothe her anxiety is through kindness and desensitization. For it is not only in her nightmares she experiences terror, but also during the day at unexpected times. Yesterday, when sunshine suddenly shone through the clouds and into our living room, Fiona began to tremble and then tried to jump off the sofa and hide. But I held on to her shivering little body and pressed it next to me until finally, after a very long time, she lay down and fell asleep. Please understand, I'm not equating a dog's distress with that of a child or any adult, and I'm not being anthropomorphic. 
attributing human characteristics to non-human beings. What I suggest instead is that most sentient creatures share certain physiological, neurological responses, responses to pain and abuse included, and that creatures with more developed brains have more complex reactions. Most pet owners, I believe, would agree. On the other hand, do we pet stewards sometimes go overboard in treating animals like humans? Just think of dog shows or YouTube videos of animals just in cute, florid, and bizarre costumes, or that we have stores devoted exclusively to pets, food, fashion, etc. According to the American Veterinary Medical Association, the American Pet Products Association reported that in 2019, about two-thirds of American households own pets and spent nearly $37 billion, that's B, $37 billion on pet food, with veterinary care coming in second at $28 billion. While the United States spends the most per household on pets, the UK, France, and Switzerland are runners-up. How must that vast amount of money spend on food and veterinary care, at least $65 billion per year in the United States? How must that seem to people in poverty-stricken countries who may be starving and sick or whose children are dying of malnutrition or curable diseases? Are we equally sad how it may appear to impoverished people in our own country? But even with all that money spent on pets, not all owners are responsible in their stewardship of their companion animals. There are far too many prosecutable animal cruelty cases with even more instances of neglect not excluding what is done to farm animals and wildlife. An aspect of the relationship of cruelty to animals and violent crime was the subject of a groundbreaking research project that was initiated through the World Society for the Protection of Animals, WISPA, now called World Animal Protection. John's prior experience as a prosecuting agent of animal cruelty cases convinced him that, anecdotally, there was a history of animal abuse as boys, in men who later in life committed crimes of a particularly violent nature. Together, we did a preliminary outline for a research study, then sought funding from the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation to conduct it. We contacted Professor Stephen Kellett at Yale University, and he, along with his co-investigator, Alan Feltaus, MD, a forensic psychiatrist, designed an interview study comparing criminals' history of animal abuse to that of non-criminals. Their paper, the first to quantify such an association, was published in the journal Human Relations in 1985. They concluded that, quote, childhood cruelty toward animals occurred to a significantly greater degree among aggressive criminals than among non-aggressive criminals or non-criminals. Additionally, the occurrence of more than 40 cases of extreme animal cruelty facilitated the development of a preliminary classification of nine distinct motivations for animal cruelty. Finally, family violence, particularly paternal abuse and alcoholism, were significantly more common among aggressive criminals with a history of childhood cruelty toward animals. Although many law enforcement and healthcare professionals subjectively thought there was such an association, this scientific research was the first to prove it. Given that, we went back to the Dodge Foundation to request a grant to order hundreds of reprints of their article. We mailed the reprints to school counselors, school nurses, and clerks of court with the intention of educating them to be alert for children who arm animals, 
so that it might be an intervention at an early age. Drs. Kellett and Feldhaus went on to study and publish further results on the topic in a number of prestigious journals. Today, as a result of this research, the connection between animal abuse and violent crime is well established. With this connection as background, I later helped John develop and find funding for a model humane education program through WISPA, utilizing templates from the MSPC and others. With the assistance of Gerardo Huertas of WESPA's Costa Rican office, it was successfully integrated to that country's public school system. It was the first of its kind there. The underlying principle was that humane treatment of animals and humane treatment of our fellow human beings is interdependent. I believe that. So, on a personal note, to whomever was cruel to Fiona and to all abusers of people and animals, may you have eternal nightmares. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next month, but I can't tell you what the topic is. It will be a surprise to me as well. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.